The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in October 2008. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theater Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. To say the longtime artistic director of Manhattan Theater Club is an understatement because Lynn Meadow has been the artistic director of MTC, Manhattan Theater Club, since 1972, something like 35, 36 years. Lynn is just back from a sabbatical. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about some of the shows that they do at Manhattan Theater Club, shows like Doubt and Proof, Rabbit Hole, Three Days of Rain. The Tale of the Allergist's Wife, some of the playwrights that Lynn has worked with, including Alan Akeborn, Terrence McNally, John Patrick Shanley, A.R. Gurney, Donald Margulies, Richard Greenberg. Lynn, welcome to Downstage Center. Thank you. I, I'm wondering if your audience thinks that I'm a very ancient, ancient <laughs> old woman. Please reassure them that I'm not. I'm young and sprightly. Well, you started that when you were a teenager. I did. Actually, I did. I did started. You really? I, no, not quite, not quite teens, but in my early 20s. <laughs> well, well, we'll get into all of that. For our listeners who may have heard the term Manhattan Theater Club, but maybe are not that familiar with it, just give us a general, you know, overview of, of what you do at Manhattan Theater Club. Okay. Well, Manhattan Theater Club is one of the subsidized theaters in New York City. It's a not-for-profit theater which basically means that the theater is not in business to make money. Any um, revenues that come in from shows that we produce go back into the central fund of producing more shows. And um, as you say, we've been in business uh, for a long time under my artistic leadership. I think the theater was founded the year before I was the artistic director. And uh, we take our place in New York as the theater that is mainly committed and has been mainly committed to doing new work, Uh, new work by American playwrights and by English playwrights. And we have three theaters, one theater that's located on Broadway, uh, formerly known as the Biltmore Theater. It was just renamed the Friedman Theater uh, two weeks ago. And we have two theaters off-Broadway at New York City Center, um, one off Broadway house that is 300 seats and another one that's 150 seats. So we produce in three venues. We do a lot of new work, as I say, or we take a look at um, older works that with a, a new vantage point. And uh, we've worked with great artists over the years and uh, had a lot of fun. I mean, I, all I can say is uh, oh, three decades have gone by very quickly. After... 35 years, you chose to take a sabbatical, and you are back literally two weeks ago, right when when the Freedman was renamed. What what were your goals for taking time off? And then we'll jump back to what you were doing before you did. But, well, um, in terms of goals, I'm not, I, I think the idea for me was actually not to have them because I've been so goal-oriented since, since I started the Manhattan Theater Club. And uh, I, I wrote a piece for a magazine up in um, Connecticut in which I described going to a conference for the theater, I think five years into my tenure as artistic director. It was a conference that has now become rather famous. It was called FACT. And it gathered in Princeton, New Jersey, and it was a meeting of all the muckety mucks in the commercial theater and all the people from around the country who run uh, who ran regional theaters. And we were there to talk about the state of the American theater. Well, I didn't have much to say except that I had one kind of single platform, which was I said, artistic directors get exhausted. We really should be finding ways for them to take sabbaticals. Well, that was 
five years into my term <laughs> as artistic director. And it took I, a long time to sell it to your board, it huh? It did. Well, I, you know, I felt burnt out after five years, and then I continued for another 30. But I, I think the timing somehow just seemed right. I was talking to Daniel Sullivan, a director with whom we had worked many times. He directed um, a play called Proof for Us that uh, went on to win a Tony and win the Pulitzer Prize. And he directed um, Rabbit Hole for Us, also another play that uh, won the Pulitzer Prize. I was talking to Dan, who had run the Seattle Repertory Theater for a number of years. And after 10 years, Dan decided to take a sabbatical. At the time, the theater is about 15 people large. The person who was working for him at the time was a man named Doug Hughes, who had been my associate artistic director. Dan took a sabbatical, and Doug Hughes stepped in as acting artistic director. So I was talking to Dan, and I said, you know, I'd really love to take a sabbatical. He said, well, you should. It's been so long that you've been doing this. And um, I said, would you consider stepping in and being the acting artistic director? And he said, sure. So that was it. It was done. This was uh, well over a year ago. And uh, so Dan agreed. Dan had been out of Seattle Repertory Theater as the artistic director for some time. So he agreed to come in and um, be at the helm of the theater. And when he was asked why he wanted to do it, he said, I want to be the person who takes the blame. So (laughs) So that begs the question, did Dan prepare last season? And was that really programmed by him? Or did he, because he was there last year, really set up the current season? No, Dan... Uh, I planned the last season in consultation with Dan, and he executed what was my season. I am now executing the season that Daniel Sullivan was the artistic director for. So that's really interesting. So what does that Hired guns. We're hired guns. (laughs) What does that mean to come back to your own theater and essentially have inherited a season? Well, I'm finding that out now. Now, there's a lot of continuity. I'm working with, and Dan is working with people with whom I've worked for some time, Mandy Greenfield, who's the associate artistic director, the director of artistic administration, Amy Lowe. There was a, a team in place, our casting people and uh, our script people, although one of our script people actually left a couple of weeks into my sabbatical, so there were some new faces. But I, I won't be able to really tell you what it's like um, for another several months. I, I think Dan and I have known each other for so long. We're, we're both professional colleagues and we're friends, and I he has a sense of what my taste is, and I do what his taste is. So I think uh, what's been planned, I'm so far very proud of, but it definitely is an adventure to be executing a season that was created by Dan. But you're certainly not coming back for another planet. You must have been in consultation with Dan over the last year. I was in consultation, but I didn't make approvals. Uh, mm. There are th- things that Dan wanted to go ahead and do, and and uh, you know he was authoring, as it were, or being the curator as an artistic an artistic director for the people who are listening who don't know really what an artistic director does. An artistic my mother used to ask me all the time. She'd say, what do you do, actually? <laughs> she understood when I directed plays. That she, she had an idea mm-hmm. about. But but she didn't really get what does an artistic director do. And I, I would explain to her that I'm the person responsible for what's on the stage, the choice of the material, who's in it, who's designed it, 
and how it comes to pass. And in the case of a new play, I'm the person who is along, obviously, with a, a large staff and working with wonderful people. I'm the person who's saying, here's how I think we ought to be rewriting this play. And here's what where I think we need to do the work. So an artistic director, it really is the person responsible for the aesthetics on the stage of a theater. The word sabbatical is not necessarily a vacation. During the year of your sabbatical, you probably did some relaxing, but I, I assume you probably went to some other theaters that you hadn't been to. I had read somewhere you had never been to Seattle, right. which means you had never been to the Endemont. You had right. never seen the new Guthrie. That's did right. you travel? Did you see other theater work? Actually, I will tell you that I did not walk inside a theater for one year. Really? I had Originally, I had the intention to do a fair amount of traveling uh-huh. and to go and see some of the theaters that I hadn't seen. And when the time came to take the sabbatical, I decided that I simply did not want to go to the theater. So I have not been in it. I wow. went into the theater the other night for the first time to see the first preview, I actually dress rehearsal of To Be or Not To Be, which is the opening show at the Friedman Theater. And it was fantastic to be back in the theater. So I really feel refreshed not having done that. Was it tough not going to the theater or was that kind of like a, a release? Not it actually, it, at first, I was talking to Doug Hughes today who directed the opening show that we did last season, a play called Mauritius by Teresa Rebeck. And when opening night came, and I knew that the whole staff of the Manhattan Theater Club was there, and Doug was there, and the designers, and Teresa. It was really painful. I was sending them <laughs> emails and sort of saying, wish I were there, there in spirit, and you know, in communication, couldn't wait to read the reviews the next day. By the time we were doing the last show, it was, oh... I- Am I going to watch CNN or am I going to wonder about what happened? So I think in a way the sabbatical did its job, which was to – for me it was a chance really to – back away from both the daily responsibilities of running a theater, which, you know, we I say that what an artistic director does is be responsible for what's on stage, but the fact is – as an artistic director, I've dealt with real estate crises and heating problems and flooding and more things that I never would have had any idea that I would get a knowledge of. So the being away from the daily management of the theater and having a chance to think and actually to just appreciate a life in the theater was, was what happened for me. I did do some traveling, but I went to India. And uh, that was a, a great, great experience for me. We're not going to recap the entire upcoming season, but I'm curious, since you've described the process, once you came back or were ready to start getting yourself back into the swing of things, and there was this menu of a season that that Dan had set for you, was there one project that you just looked at and said, wow, that's really interesting? Well, I'm excited about the whole upcoming season. Inevitably. Yeah. But but pick one. No, I I think it's really, I never can pick. I mean, I'm one of those. I love all my children. (laughs) You know, I I do. I love other people's (laughs) children aren't always as beautiful as No, we don't. No, definitely. <laughs> we we appreciate our own much more than we do others. No, I think it's a, f- a fascinating season that he's lined up um, with Mandy Greenfield. And To Be or Not To Be is based on the 1942 Ernst Lubitsch movie, which I always loved. This the Carol Lombard. You should say not the 1982 Mel Brooks movie. No, no, no. The first, the original that was done with, um, with, with Jack, Jack Benny, Benny yeah. and Carol Lombard. I always loved that. So when I heard that that had been turned into a play and kind of taking a new look at it, I was thrilled about 
about that. And the second play at the Friedman is The American Plan, which is a play that we produced two times. I produced it in our stage two, and then I produced it in our stage one. So now it seems fitting that it's being done at, uh, at the new Friedman. And Accent on Youth, which is the third play at the um, Friedman Theater, is a play that I read in the 70s. Manhattan Theater Club has been in many different venues. Uh, the first decade was on 73rd Street in a kind of rabbit warren, wacky Czechoslovakian <laughs> Bohemian social hall where we, I just had theaters in every room. There were theaters, I think, in the bathroom, you know, cabaret in the bathroom. And <laughs> and uh, then we moved to City Center um, in the, uh, on, uh, I'm, I'm forgetting the, the address, West 55th Street. And uh, now we've added a Broadway venue. So back in the 70s, when we were in that rabbit warren, I read this play called Accent on Youth by Samuel Raffleson. Someone who worked with me said, you, you should read this play. It had been done on Broadway. And I thought, oh, this is a really interesting, curious play. And now it resurfaces. It turns out Dan was smitten with it for a long time. And uh, we called. I actually was a little bit involved in some of some of the uh, goings on. So I, I called David Hyde Pierce, and uh, whom David really, uh, who Dan really wanted to do the show. And David had been my student. I taught at Yale, and he was mm. my student. So I, I've loved him for a long time. So this play that I read in the '70s is now happening in what's what year are we in? <laughs> it's happening years later, and Dan loves it. So that's going to be the last play. Um, so I think it seems like a very exciting season. Season, and one that um, that is a reflection of Manhattan Theatre Club in that we've been committed to new writers for many years. We've done many of Richard Greenberg's plays. Uh, as an artistic policy, I, I, for, I cr- created um, a sense of home for a number of playwrights, and I would make multiple year commitments to playwrights. So we've done a lot of plays. We did a lot of plays by Richard Greenberg, and uh, we did... I think when we did John Patrick Shanley's Doubt, it was the eighth production of a John Patrick Shanley play we had done. John Patrick Shanley has a new musical coming up, which um, we were, I was also, I certainly knew about from John. So John has a home at the Manhattan Theater Club. And um, so the season reflects both a commitment to new writers as well as taking a look at lesser known revivals, To Be or Not To Be is a bit of a cult classic. It's not like Gone with the Wind. And Accent on Youth is a, a play that probably most people would think of as a new play, even though it was done, I can't even remember the year that it was oh, first gosh, done. I think it's from the 40s, yeah. given, given Rafelson. Yes. Yeah. Well, let's jump back, certainly not to the 40s, but let's talk about how you found your way to Manhattan Theater Club. Uh, you grew up in New Haven, Connecticut. Yes. And I read that as early as age 12, you were appearing not just in your local junior high school show, but you were on stage in a production at Yale, directed and written by Richard Maltby. Uh, Not directed. He just wrote it. Written by Maltby and Shire, (laughs) a cast that included Austin Pendleton, Gretchen Cryer, and Nancy Ford. But you're 12 years old. How did that happen? Well, I was a stage-struck kid in New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, My mother put on shows in the basement of our synagogue. I remember they did something called New Faces. It must have been like of 1954 or some something way back, and I went in. Many um, synagogues have uh, rooms in the sort of auditoriums in the basement where 
um, people. You put on shows. You have the wedding. Exactly. The whole thing. Exactly. You celebrate Purim. <laughs> so I remember going in to see New Faces of 1954 done by the my mother and some of her friends, you know, the dentist at night. It really was like waiting for <laughs> Guffman, you know. And I just fell in love with the theater. I thought, this is where I want to be. And, and I was really a little girl. So... Uh, um, and since we lived in New Haven, and at the time in the 50s, the late 50s, there were no undergraduate women at Yale. So the Yale Dramat, which was a very active um, undergraduate theater program, used to use local women to be in their shows. I was in a show at the Jewish Community Center when I was 10 that was directed by the real star, a man named William Francisco. And I was, I, when I was 10 years old, I uh, had the starring role in a play called Guest in the House, in which I played a neurotic child who was afraid of birds. I loved it. It was it was typecast. <laughs> Lost to the ages. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, maybe one day we'll do a revival of Guest in the House that I'll direct. Yes, if Dan had announced that, you'd have been shocked. I really would have been shocked. I'm not sure I would have come back. <laughs> but uh, Anyway, so I was in this play when I was 10 that this man, Bill Francisco, who was quite a star then, um, directed, and then he was directing a new musical by Maltby and Shire. And so he asked me and my mother to come and audition. And so my when I was in the, I guess, the seventh grade, I was in this musical. And it was just so much more fun than homeroom or those <laughs> boring math classes. So, But this is an undergraduate production, this a graduate school production? It was an undergraduate production, mm -hmm. a musical. The John Conklin, a very wonderful oh, designer, yeah. designed the sets. A man named Peter Hunt did the lighting. You know, I think what's interesting as you look at um, the theater and how it evolves, whether it's theaters themselves or universities or cities, Something happens when there's talent. Talent attracts talent. And I think I was very influenced when I was a kid by watching this because I was very conscious of how talented the people were. I looked at some of the shows that were being done at the community center. And I thought, well, there's maybe one good actor in it. You know, Eileen Goldman had some talent and <laughs> Bunny Cohen, but the rest of the people really needed to hang on to their day jobs. And I was very astute as a kid. My sister used to say, oh, Linny, you know, you're so critical of everything. But, I, you know, I had, an, I had a certain kind of eye. But I was influenced to the extent that I saw what happened when talent attracted other talent. And I think that really influenced me when I went to the Manhattan Theater Club. And uh, I know I'm sort of jumping and we can go back, but in the early 70s, when they asked me to be the artistic director, I just, well, I asked half the people who I was in that show with to come and work. I asked Gretchen Cryer, who was the star of the show, to come and work. And I asked Richard Malpe to come and work at the Manhattan Theater Club. And I asked Austin Pendleton, different people that I'd known, actually also from Williamstown, but from that show. But I think something happens where excellence begets excellence. And at the Manhattan Theater Club, we've always had more than one theater at a time. And I've said that I'm interested in this kind of osmosis that happens when some people, it, you can call it competition, you could call it osmosis, you could call it symbiosis, or, or just something in the air where people are doing good things. Other people tend to do good things. I don't know exactly why. I'm sure um, there are physicists who can explain certain laws that, that happen of, I don't know, waves and things like that. But I, I have seen it to be true that 
talented people attract other talented people. And I saw that at Yale. There were tremendously gifted people. Sam Waterston was in the uh, the next show at Yale. And, and I was in a couple of them as, as a kid. So that sense of quality was something that really was in the drinking water for me when I was very young. Well, between those... Um prepubescent years at Manhattan Theater Club. What was the road for you from New Haven to New York? And I don't mean I-95. Okay. (laughs) Or the Merritt, I think. Or the Merritt Parkway in those days. Um, Well, you know, so as a kid, I was stage struck. I I realized in, I guess I was in junior high school, and I was in Mr. O'Reilly's homeroom class and every you had to put on a play you know the homeroom had to put on a play and talk about talent Mr. O'Reilly simply didn't have it and he was trying to direct the homeroom play and so I went up to him and I said Mr. O'Reilly would it be okay with you I think you're struggling and would it be okay if I directed the play he was so relieved you know he he was a science teacher he had no, so I directed the homeroom play and Beverly Gam was the star, and I, of course, was in it also and telling everybody what to do. But I remember thinking that I really wasn't very good in the play. And I thought, well, if only somebody could tell me what to do the way I'm telling everybody else what to do, then maybe I could be a good actor. But I think I called myself an actress at the time. We didn't use that kind of all-purpose actor. Um and that's when I realized, like when I was in the eighth grade, that really what I wanted to do was to direct. I actually didn't want to act. I didn't have the talent to do it. I was always watching myself. I was always outside of myself. And that person doesn't belong on the stage. That person belongs in the dark, in the house, watching what's going on. So that was that was pretty early. And then I managed to get through high school. And uh, I, was st- I acted actually a lot at Yale. I did a, a production. I was in... Uh, Oedipus Rex in a touring production with Yale undergraduates when I was in high school. I played Jocasta. I think I was uh, 16. Do you think I was a little bit too young to play (laughs) Jocasta in Oedipus Rex? But my boyfriend played Oedipus, so it was all very cozy. Um, Anyway, so I managed to get through high school acting and somehow passing my courses, and I managed to get accepted at Bryn Mawr College. How, I'm not really sure, but um, it was not a great haven for um, acting, directing, and the theater. There was a theater program, but it wasn't a center of it. But um, but I did a fair amount of actually directing when I was there as well. And um, then I went off to Paris. I, I became a French major, studied French, because they didn't... They had one theater course at Bryn Mawr. It was the only... I, why... I, 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 literally at the time, one theater course. There was not a theater major. I don't think there's a theater major to this day. It was very, very academic, very rigorous, and um, and wonderful. You know, ter- terrific, wonderful women, and and a great education. It was not a life in the theater, so I was always bristling. But but I I loved my experience there, and then uh, I went on. I lived in France for a bit, and then um, when I was a senior at Bryn Mawr, all I had ever really wanted to do was go to the Yale School of Drama. So I applied, and, and you know, Bryn Mawr was one of those places where, you know, this was Catherine Hepburn's home, and women, and it was the late 60s, and this was, women could do what they wanted, right? I wanted to go to the Yale School of Drama, so I applied, and I was horrified that I got, I, I wasn't accepted. I was made, I was put on the waiting list as the first alternate. Now, is Bob Brewstein the dean at this yes, time? Yes, Bob Brewstein was the dean. And I was so shocked not to be accepted that I got on the train and I went up to New Haven and I asked to meet with the dean 
who was Gordon Rogoff at the time. And uh, I said to him, I don't understand. Why wasn't I accepted? And he said, well, it was very, very, very competitive. We only accepted five people, and we had hundreds of applications for those five places. And I felt despondent. I thought, well, why why didn't I get a place? And um, as I said, it was the late 60s. It was really the, a time before the feminist movement had happened. So there wasn't a vocabulary for feminism. So in my naivete, I said to him, well, did you accept any women? And he said, well, no. And he said, and I will never forget this. He said, we actually haven't had that much luck with the women that we accepted at the school. And I left and I said, well, I hope that somebody decides not to come because I very much want to come here. I wanted to come here my whole life. And I felt like everything, you know, Hill House High School and Bryn Mawr College and my junior year abroad on Smith College, everything was just a stepping stone to go to the Yale School of Drama. And um, that summer I came, I went back to New Haven and I was working in New Haven and I wrote a very long letter to the school in which I, it was basically an apologia for why I could, as a woman, be considered to be a directing student and why my abilities were certainly as good as any man whom they had accepted and maybe in some cases better. Um, and I talked about nurturing and I talked about things, you know, that probably, you know, one, uh, I, I'm not sure I would write exactly the same letter today, but it was a passionate, heartfelt. And because I had gone to Bryn Mawr and gotten this great education, I knew how to write. So it was a very persuasive letter. And all I can tell you is two days later, I heard from Yale and they said, you are coming to the drama school. Whether someone didn't come or not, I don't know. I was talking to Richard Dreyfus once, and he told me he was supposed to go to the Yale Drama School, and he dropped out at the last minute. So I don't know if I had Richard Dreyfus's <laughs> place or whether they simply accepted me. I also was doing some work in New Haven. I directed. I was directing a couple of shows while I was there, and another person uh, had not been accepted at Yale. He'd applied a, a, a director named A.J. Antoon. Do you remember A.J.? Sure, sure. And we were both working at a, a little coffee shop called The Exit playhouse and uh, AJ wasn't even he wasn't even put on the waiting list and he wrote them a letter and said that he was talking to his frog in a pond who said he had to go to the school and they let him in as a special <laughs> student <laughs> interestingly at the end of the first year the two students who uh, were considered to be doing the best work were me and AJ I was asked by Nico Sakharopoulos at the end of that year to go up and assist him at Williamstown. Nikos was the longtime artistic director at Williamstown. Exactly. And he was the real guru teacher at Yale. He was a wonderful teacher. He taught the directing students at Yale. He was really the head of the directing department. Gordon Rogoff was the dean. And so Nikos asked me to come and assist him at Williamstown and to, you know, assist him in directing shows and also just in looking at the general um, running of the theater, the casting and things like that. So that, too, was very influential. But it just was it was an interesting thing that both AJ and I really emerged as the two. In fact, you probably haven't heard of any of the other students who were in my directing class at Yale. 
Well, let's not taunt them yes. <laughs> if they're listening. No. Well, oh, well, yeah, that, let's, not, <laughs> no, let's not taunt them. We, and let's hope Mr. Ry- Mr. O'Reilly's not listening. I know. Be well, a science teacher. I, yeah. I think we're safe, I probably. Know. He was such a good science teacher. He just didn't want to. Yeah. He, he didn't have it to be a director. Well, let's talk about how you got to Manhattan Theater Club now. 1972, okay. it was very much in its infancy. It had only been yes. around since a year or so. How did you get that position as artistic director going in? Uh-huh. Well, interestingly, when I, I had gone back to live in France after a couple of years at Yale, I took a leave of absence, and I went back to France, and uh, I was in corresponding with Nikos, and he told me that he was going to be running a theater, and it was called the Manhattan Theater Club. So the, this, the Manhattan Theater Club, which was founded by a group of businessmen uh, who wanted to seek an alternative to Broadway at the time, the off-off-Broadway movement really wasn't even uh, had was just emerging cafe chino was emerging and really that was it so they had courted nico sakharopoulos to run the what was uh incorporated as the manhattan theater club but they had really no money um and in fact there's a funny story i'll I'll tell you afterwards but they they had no budget and nikos was a seasoned artistic director and he said to me uh he called me linny he said linny i'm not going to do this job. It's just I can't do this now at this point in my career. And I said, I, I understand. So now cut to, it's my first year in New York. I'm running around the town trying to get hired anywhere. I meet with Marshall Mason, who's running Circle Rep, and ask if I can do something I wanted to direct. He said, well, no, you know, they didn't have any positions. And I met with Bob Moss, who had started a theater called Player at Horizons. I went, I met everyone everywhere to try to get a job. Um, I couldn't get a paying job, which we know is not a surprise in the mm-hmm. theater. And I went to work at Harper and Row, and then I had a, a friend of mine who was a playwriting um, student at Yale wrote a play called All Through the House, and I loved the play. I thought it was wonderful. I wanted to direct it, and there was a theater called the Manhattan Theater Club that a man named Bob Sickinger was running up on East 73rd Street in this bohemian, old bohemian social hall. And basically he would rent rooms to people to put on shows. So I I don't know how I did it, but I, I sort of um, figured out a way to get a grant because I didn't have any money. And so I got a few hundred dollars, I think from the New York State Council on the Arts, to do a show. And I cast this play called All Through the House. And I rented a room at what was the Manhattan Theater Club. And it was, I think it was one of the more interesting productions that was done that season. And there was a lot of buzz about it. So someone from the board of directors came to see the show. And um, he said to me, uh, what was your experience here? I said, it was awful. I said, I had to do everything. I didn't even realize what I was doing was directing and producing. But I didn't know that there was this thing called really producing. I only knew about directing, but I had to do both in order to get my show on. So that's what I did. I did up the cards. I did the publicity. I did everything. So not much. No, a lot has changed. But um, So I said, I had a terrible experience. He said, well, I went to Haverford and I and would you just come and talk to me? He was the dean at Hunter College. Anyway, since he went to Haverford and I'd gone to Bryn Mawr, I had a soft spot in my heart, so I went to talk to him. And he said, we're looking for a new artistic executive director for the Manhattan Theater Club. Would you be interested in this job? And unlike some other people uh, who don't blink when they're offered a position, I did blink. I don't know if you heard, Sarah Pound said that she didn't blink when she was offered being the vice president. Well, I, I did blink a lot. I really thought long and hard about it. Um, 
And the reason I thought long and hard about it is that I had been stopping at Zabar's every day on my way to work and asking if they had a job in the cheese department because I had run out of money. I was out of Harper and Row, and they finally offered me a job in the cheese department. So I thought, do I become the artistic executive director <laughs> of the Manhattan Theater Club or do I work in the cheese department at Sabar's? And I was weighing it and going back and forth. What should I do? As Charles Bush said, if only you had taken the job at Zabar's, God only knows what Zabar's would be today. <laughs> so finally, I, I went to a meeting with the board of directors and um, to talk to them about their situation. And all, all I had majored in French at Bryn Mawr. I'd been in those shows growing up in New Haven in the synagogue and like that. And um, I uh, – so – I had this. I went to this meeting to talk to them about the Manhattan Theater Club, and I thought a good thing to do would be to ask to see their budget. So I said, "Gentlemen, do you have a budget?" And they showed me their budget, and I looked at it, and I was not that you didn't have a math requirement at Bryn Mawr when I was there. So I looked down the budget. I said, "This is very interesting budget. Very interesting. I see you have seventy five thousand dollars. What I don't understand is why do you have a parentheses around the number?" They said, that means it's a deficit and we don't have the $75,000. So that was really my introduction to um, stepping in as the artistic executive director of the Manhattan Theater Club. I decided to do it. We negotiated a three-month contract. And um, I knew that I needed to find someone who had um, business skills in the way that I felt I had artistic skills. But I didn't want to commit for more than three months. After three months, they renewed my contract. It was long. It was like a 20-page contract for – it was sort of preposterous. But um, I stayed on, obviously, after those three months. And I embarked on a search to find someone who I thought was strong in business. And after a few years, I met Barry Grove, and who had just graduated from Dartmouth and was going off to work in Rhode Island at a theater in Rhode Island. And I said, why don't you come to New York to the Manhattan Theater Club? And he said, no, I don't really think I'm ready. And I hired somebody else. Uh, and then at the end of that year, I called him back and I said, are you ready now? And he said, I think I am. So that was 34 years ago. And we have been partners uh, really ever since. I hired him as a general manager. And then in the 80s, um, he became... Uh, executive director, or and now he has the title of executive producer. So uh, it's a very long-running relationship, and um, and I I knew that in order to be successful, I had to have an understanding of what I knew how to do and what I didn't know how to do. And I think it's you know one of the the things that has served me well of understanding that you have to have great press agents. You have to have great people who work for you. I'm saying that because someone, someone sitting here worked at Manhattan Theater Club some time ago. Yes, I, I have a little history, a little <laughs> bit. It doesn't, it doesn't compare to yours. Obviously, with the many years at Manhattan Theater Club, we can't possibly cover everything. So we want to talk about some of the signal moments in the history and what it meant in the growth of the company. And certainly, Barry joining you was, was a key moment. Probably the next key moment was a show that you started do you began in your cabaret space, which, as I recall, was sort of also where people had snacks during intermission at the other theaters, and the box office was at one end of it. Yes, and that was a little musical called "Ain't Misbehaving." Exactly. So, 
What was the experience? That was uh, four or five years into your tenure. Yes. Although, and, and what did that mean for the company? Yeah, I think Ain't Misbehaving obviously was a seminal moment for Manhattan Theatre Club. But I think we actually got on the map sooner than that. And had we not been on the map, I'm not sure that Ain't Misbehaving could have happened. So really, in in my first season, uh, we did a... We did, um, uh, the uh, production of the Little Mahagoni that Hal Prince came to see, I don't, you know, it was very um, kind of uh, full of chutzpah that we would think about doing this opera. But Hal came to see it, and he was on the National Endowment um, Advisory Committee at the time, and so we got our first grant because he thought it was a wonderful production. That same season, uh, we did something called the New York Theater Strategy, and it was. Um, so this was like the 73, 72-73 season. It was 17 plays in six weeks by every major off-off-Broadway playwright that there was. Lanford Wilson, Terrence McNally, uh, Julie Bavasso, Marie Irene Forness, um, John Ford Noonan, uh, Rosalind Wexler – and there was a full-time staff of three, but and as I described this theater to this building, it was it had so many rooms, so we just did a play in every room. With I don't even think we had a technical director, so and there was tremendous coverage in the New York Times about this event. Uh, a play that Terrence McNally wrote called Bad Habits actually came out of that, and then the other thing we did that summer was a play by Richard Wesley an African-American writer, wonderful screenwriter now and playwright. It was called The Sirens. And that also got a tremendous amount of attention. So what I think happened was right out of the box, we got a certain recognition that then invited more people to come and work at the theater. That actually was five years before Hmm. Ain't Misbehavin happened. So while Ain't Misbehavin um, definitely uh, put us on the map and gave us a little bit of money for the first time to play with, although at the time I think all the actors were received maybe $75 for the entire run. Manhattan Theatre Club at least had been launched in a way so that you there was a sense that this was a place that you might want to come and work. It's that thing I was trying to talk about, about talent. You know, people want to go and work where there are other talented people. And so I think getting on the map so early and getting all that publicity very early on, I had my picture on the um, arts and leisure section by um, July of the end of my first year. And then two years later, Walter Kerr wrote a big piece about um, uh, we were doing a production of The Seagull with the Joe Chaikin directed. So, uh, again, there was a certain amount of heat that, that started then. So by the time... And and also, Ashes, I think, was preceded by... Uh, Ashes preceded Eight Misbehaving. They were roughly concurrent. We yes. should talk about Ashes because we're talking to you so much about as a producer. Yes. And we're not talking about you as a director. And right. Ashes was, again, you may say there were others that preceded it. Yes. But that was a big moment for the theater Very produced big. in association with... The public, right. or the New York Shakespeare Festival at the time. Yes, um, but it was you as a director. Yes, and so the combination of Ashes, a very serious play. Yes, and then Ain't Misbehaving coming within a few months of that was yes. quite a one-two punch. It was, it was, and uh, you know, interestingly, Ashes was a play that I read and I, I thought was very strong, and uh, I, I couldn't get the rights to do it because the people in London. 
uh, it was written by an English playwright named David Rudkin, and the people in London had didn't know who we were. They hadn't seen the New York Theatre Strategy, and um, so they just they kind of said, "Well, no, you know, we're not going to give you the rights." So I called Joe Papp. And I said, Joe, I have a play that I think is very interesting and I'd like to do it. Would you be interested in co-producing? And he said, let me read it. I got it to him and he called me after the first act. He said, I said, I can't get the rights to do it. He, and he read the first act. He said, call them and tell them you'll, whatever you need to tell them. So I called the people back and um, – they started to hang up on me because I'd called so many times. I said, wait, wait, wait. Um, I said, Joseph Papp wants to cope. And a chorus line was then, you know, there was mm-hmm. jo- Joe's name certainly was a, so you couldn't hang up the phone anyway. So uh, uh, Joe agreed to co-produce it. We did it at the Manhattan Theater Club and it was very successful. And then he moved it to the New York Shakespeare Festival. It was with Brian Murray and uh, Roberta Maxwell. We're just wonderful playing the the leading roles of a couple trying to have a child and uh, facing the difficulties of infertility. And then um, it, after it ran for some time at the Shakespeare Festival, we did replacements. And I said to Joe, I saw a young actress um, when I was directing at the O'Neill Theater Center. I thought she was very gifted and maybe we should see her for this. She was in Washington at the time. And that was Diane Wiest. Hmm. So we brought Diane to New York and that was her first show in New York was... Um, uh, she replaced Roberta Maxwell and Astridge, and she she was amazing, just wonderful. So it was um it was a a, a wonderful, very fulfilling artistic time for me. Um, you know, those is the late seventies. Well, in the seventies, when you were on East Seventy Third Street, which is a very residential area of the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Um, then you decided to move to New York City Center on 55th Street, which is more in the business area. Was was it just to get more space? Is that the reason you moved, or is that other no? Reasons? It actually was, as I was saying before. As an artistic director, you learn more things than you ever dreamed you would. We didn't want to move. We were very happy on 73rd Street, and in fact, we had come up with a plan to acquire a theater that backed up to our theater on 73rd Street. There was a 74th Street Playhouse, I think it was called, and it was a a 300-seat theater, and we had already... You couldn't get a ticket to the Manhattan Theater Club. We had really outgrown um, the number of seats that we had in, well, the, in the space that we had. What was, what was the seating capacity? We had a 150-seat theater, was, was, was our was main the biggest, theater, the and then our smaller theater, where we had done Crimes of the Heart and... Uh, lots of other shows in that smaller theater was a hundred seats, and we did you know these operas and musicals and uh, but you know we were bursting at the seams and we needed for revenue and and to serve an audience we needed a larger space so we worked out a plan to acquire Seventy Fourth Street and to have kind of a passway through so we would have had a three hundred seat house a hundred and fifty and a hundred seat house and. Um, Everything was all set. The Bohemian Benevolent Society, our landlords, uh, we negotiated an arrangement. Our board of directors was wonderful, and people were putting up money. The city was going to put up some money for us to do this. And at the last minute, they decided they want they got an, a better offer to build a high rise. Mm. So there we were, really stuck, and they were. We had to leave. We not only did we not. Were we not able to add on, but they were we were being thrown out, so it really wasn 't a choice. We went through all kinds of uh, we went through three different courts fighting this and got wonderful pro bono uh, 
work from fabulous lawyers. It went up to the Supreme Court in Albany, but we ultimately lost the case. My husband, who's a lawyer, explained to me that in real estate, it's not enough just to have it be your word. You actually have to be holding the piece of paper. So I learned that after months, and poor Barry and I, you know, went through a lot of court stuff and um, tremendous time with lawyers. Anyway, so we were stuck. We were being thrown out, and we started walking, pounding the pavements, looking for a place to go. And um, we looked in a number of different places, uh, garages and all kinds of places around town. And then we looked, I think Jerry Schoenfeld of the Schubert Organization said, you know, you really ought to look at the basement of City Center. There's a theater down there that no one's using, and I think they'd use it a little bit, and you ought to take a look at it. And we looked at it. We went with John Lee Beatty, who has been designing shows and been on our board and a, such a longtime friend. And I and I said, and John said, and Barry said, we think this is it. So we made an arrangement with City Center for one theater. This was in 1983, I think, we moved. And then we created another theater in the that was has become our stage two, the a hundred and fifty seat theater. So we had one season where we just operated. Oh no, I, we operated on seventy third Street and on fifty fifth Street. So we've always had more than one theater at a time from the beginning. That was you know I, I loved the idea of three ring circus and chaos and everybody influencing everybody else. So we've always had more than one theater. And then we built our own, and we were out of 73rd Street. And do you know, to this day, they never built the high-rise? It's still there. Hmm. Where our, our old digs are still there, it's just been, I mean, it's been years. It's in, since 1983. Nothing is, uh, uh, it's sort of all boarded up, and um, they never they never did it, anything. With the moves of the theaters, obviously, it's been a great expansion of the company. Certainly, that brings opportunity. But as MTC has grown from 73rd Street to City Center at 55th, now into the Biltmore as well, has the growth... The Freedman. I'm sorry. I, <laughs> I know. I, I get corrected all the time. Barry tells me it's the Freedman now. Samuel J. Freedman. Have, has there become work that you can't do? You had so much freedom in those early years. Mm-hmm. Is there work now that you wish you could do that you can't, given the institution you've become. Right. Well, I think, you know, one of the things about being a director, uh, being an artistic director, is that we, I think we like to romanticize what the past was. And, uh, but the fact, uh, the fact, and that's not being a director, an artistic director, but the fact is there were always constraints. They've just been different. They've worn different hats, you know, whether it was not having enough money to do things, whether it was, you know, not being, you know, having enough time, not having enough staff. And I think that there are constraints now. There, There's no question that the costs of running the company have become much larger, and therefore the sheer amount of activity is much more limited than it was when in the early days when we were on 73rd Street, when we used to do nine shows in our cabaret and six shows in one theater and five shows in another theater. And, you know, we were, I, I don't, it, I guess I keep calling it a rabbit warren and I understand now why. I mean, we really were hippity hop, hippity hop. We just did as, we did an awful lot of things. And now that's not possible for us. We're on different contracts and I'm happy that, that that's the case. I mean, people were, People were not really being paid very much, and uh, the artists still subsidize 
the work that's done in the theater. So, yes, definitely constraints. Um, different ones. They, they look different. Um, they wear different hats. But I think sometimes also limitations are the things that actually end up making you much more creative. So uh, I'm still learning about um, being the artistic director of a theater that's on Broadway. And, uh, you know, I, I was the artistic director for a long time of two off-Broadway theaters. So I'm, you know, there's a learning curve for me and it's been exciting. It's, you know, we, I think we've done some great work and, you know, in the period of time that we've been, uh, that we went moved to the Biltmore and now the Freedmen, we collected a number of Pulitzer Prizes and, you know, the, the uh, commitments that we made to writers I think really was a very important thing and I'll always stand by that. I mean, I, I, lo- I always loved cutting a new path through the jungle. I, you know, I'm not uh, walking on a tried and true path is less interesting to me as a director and as an artistic director. I, I like to discover some new things or take a look at something that I think I know and look at it in a different way. Like last season, we did a production of um, Come Back Little Sheba with the Pathomercus and playing the role that had never been played by an African-American woman. It was written for a white woman and you know apparently I didn't see it because I didn't go to the theater but apparently it was she was sensational and and it really was a new look at an at a a play that people thought that they knew so I'm for innovation and I'm for you know as I say making new paths and um, finding new ways to do things but while we're talking about the physical space the now the Freedman, formerly known as the Biltmore, 650 seats Broadway has. Does that give you opportunities uh, to do other work that you could not have done in the smaller space? Definitely. I mean, to do work on a larger scale, definitely. And and again, interestingly, when we decided to make that move to the Biltmore... Which was a couple of years ago? But it, no, probably. we moved in 2001. I guess we broke ground, though, in 2000. We've been there for five seasons now. This will be our fifth season. Um but when the plans we were setting the plans in motion, many of the playwrights with whom we worked had come of age. They people like Terence McNally and Pete Gurney and Beth Henley and Richard Greenberg and Donald Margulies were playwrights whose works were ready to be seen in a Broadway venue, which is to say by more people. So um and they wanted their work to be seen by more people. And so part of the um, motivation behind making that move was saying, okay, well, here we've done Terrence McNally's play, Lips Together, Teeth Apart, with uh, a young actor whom we uh, introduced to Nathan, named uh, to uh, Terrence, named Nathan Lane, and with Christine Bransky and Susie Kurtz. And we moved the show off-Broadway to the Lucille Lortel Theater. It ran for quite some time. We thought, well, would that show have gone on Broadway? And we thought, well, yeah, that would have been in in the right theater, in the right house, in an intimate enough house, Lips Together, Teeth Apart, or a play I directed called Woman in Mind with Stockard Channing. We thought, well, that would have been a good play to run on Broadway. But somehow um, people weren't moving some of those plays to Broadway. Alan Akeborn, whose work, you know, uh, I've been a great champion of, as says Howard, but I I really, I love his work, and I've directed a lot of his plays. Um, 
so we wanted to move some of our playwrights' work that had been known off Broadway playwrights to Broadway, and that gave so that has given us opportunities. The world went through a lot of changes, though, from the time that we made the decision about going to where we are now. You know, first of all, nine eleven happened just as we broke ground. Nine eleven happened, and interestingly, in the year that we we did a play of Terrence's called Love, Valor, Compassion, that we did um, uh, at City Center. The year that we moved that show, 1995, the year we moved that play to Broadway, at the time that it was running, it was the only straight play, it's funny to call it straight play, but it's the only straight play to be running on Broadway at the time. So there was a real dearth of new work that was going on on Broadway and of plays. There were a lot of musicals that were happening. So we felt that um, our role on Broadway was going to be to fulfill a need to have more plays. Interestingly, in the past years, within the past five years, there's a lot more work. The Roundabout is doing a lot more work on uh, of plays on, on Broadway. Lincoln Center Theater is doing more work. And then there are independent producers who are doing more plays. So there are there are more plays that are happening on Broadway. And there's a, a certain vitality, I think, that has happened. I mean, w- the world is in a very strange place now, so it's hard to talk about vitality as we read the headlines in the newspapers and we try to understand what all of this means. And, of course, it's way too early to try to understand what the financial... Uh, the, our financial profile will do to subsidized companies and do to the you know the entire world and um, but th- things evolve in the theater and things go through trends and changes and you know Broadway's become a fun place to work. In the time that we have, it's been impossible to go through every possible interesting show that you've done. I want to ask about an event that now is roughly 10 years in the past in MTC, which was a very unfortunate blow up over the production of Terrence McNally's Corpus Christi. Mm-hmm. It uh, National headlines, um, certainly threats against the theater, questions about the balance between what was artistry that you had to commit to and and what could you do as the head of an institution with 10 years hindsight what do you think the impact of that experience was on you in planning seasons Mm -hmm. at the theater well I think you know what happened with Corpus Christi uh, was that this was a play that we Terrence had been talking about writing for some time and uh I adore Terrence. We're very close and um, and have maintained being very close through Corpus Christi and now. Um, and Terrence would come to my office prior to Corpus Christi and I would say, what play are you going to do now? It started with, uh, we had done a play of his called It's Only a Play. And I said to Terrence, before it opened to the press, uh, I would like to do your next play. And he said that was one of the greatest gifts he he had ever received. And he came to my office and I said, so what's the play? He said, well, it's a play set on in the last century in an island uh, off Maine, the coast of Maine. And it's roughly based on a a more obscure Shakespearean play. I said, that sounds interesting. Then uh, two months later, he came and handed me the script of the first act of Frankie and Johnny and the Cleared Alone, a two-hander set in Hell's Kitchen. Um, so 
Terrence and I had a relationship in which he would tell me what he was going to write. Sometimes it had some bearing on what he actually delivered and sometimes not. I remember he, he sat in my office and wrote on a piece of paper, lips together, teeth apart. And uh, I said, well, that sounds fun. So we did that. And he did the same thing with Love, Valor, Compassion. He wrote it on a slip of paper. And he had been working on Corpus Christi for some time. We announced it for three seasons, actually, before he, in fact, wrote it. And we did a reading of the play that was a private reading of the play. Um, and Terrence and I didn't even have a chance to talk about the play after uh, this reading when there was a headline in the newspaper that said, uh, Manhattan Theater Club to do Gay Jesus Play. There, and there was this firestorm that really was um, an intrusion on the artistic process for me and for Terrence. That um, suddenly, and we had. In fairness to the press, we had announced in three prior brochures that we were doing this play. And Terrence hadn't uh, written the play for whatever reason. He just hadn't. It was just never ready when it came time for us to, to cast it and go ahead and do it. But I think what was troubling to me and what I learned was that um, you have to be very careful about protecting the artistic process. And you have to – there are things that happen – in rehearsal rooms that should stay in rehearsal rooms and people should have a chance to work on on pieces uh, of work and particularly ones that have you know potential volatility without being intruded upon so that's certainly one thing that i've learned and i'm i'm more protective as a result of that uh, more protective about you know kind of letting people know what we might do what we might not do because that it was very I think it was very hurtful suddenly people are demonstrating and carrying on and Terrence and I hadn't even had a chance to talk about well where do we want to work on the play do we want to proceed with the play what, so the the decision was because there was such um, there was such a firestorm we proceeded we proceed with the play I feel very proud that we did we honored Terrence's right to speak and we honored the public right to talk about what it wanted to talk about and to express dissent. So the fact of the matter is, as they say, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. The fact is, we we supported Terrence's right and we supported the public's right and it was it was difficult. You know, it was a, 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 a quite an endeavor and a, and it was scary and there are a lot of strong feelings around it. But interestingly, Terrence just told me Corpus Christi is going to be done this year. In preparing for this interview, I came across several articles from various years that struck the theme of MTC bounces back after a down season. Is there anything you'd like to say to those who, from time to time, have sought fit to cast, well, doubt? Well, I I think if you look at the history of the Manhattan Theater Club, uh, a theater that's been dedicated to doing adventurous work, there's certainly been some seasons that have been much more successful than other seasons. But I think if you look at the track record of the Manhattan Theatre Club, there's an extraordinary consistency and that never more than one season have we gone without delivering a hit. I mean, in 35 or 36 years, every at least every other season, there's some major show that has emerged. So I think... I stand by a track record. I think that compared to many theaters that have run for a lot shorter time, I think we've stayed on top for a very long time. And I think, and I've always felt that when you're doing new work and you're taking risks, you have to take risks. So saying bouncing back doesn't mean anything to me because as a board member once said to me, if we're not doing our share of things that are not working well, we're not doing our job. 
So I feel as if I feel proud that we've done our job and that we have. I feel as if we've sustained excellence and that um, the bouncing around and bouncing up and down is part of the excitement of the theater. So I I think uh, I, I would stand proud and tall and say I think we've done a great job. And freshly freshly back from sabbatical. Now, 36th season at Manhattan Theatre Club. Looking forward to the next 36 seasons. Yes. <laughs> the the hour has galloped past. Lynn, thank yes. you so much for being with us today. So welcome. It was great to talk to thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Lynn. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten. For Downstage Center, that is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.